Welcome back to the Talking Footy podcast. Each week across the footy season, we are talking with the biggest names in the game. I'm Bianca Chatfield, and this week our guest is none other than number two pick from the 2000 draft, 200-game saint, and my very good friend, Justin Kaczynski. Now, you may be wondering, why is a netballer hosting a Talking Footy podcast? Well, across my time playing with both Vixens and the Diamonds, I've not only worked in footy at Essendon and now at Collingwood, I've had the opportunity to meet some amazing characters in the game, and Justin was one of the very first. We're the same age we first met as 18-year-old kids when our club fitness coaches had this brainwave of a joint pre-season running session around the tan. I remember being so humiliated by having to run next to these boys. But what it did do was start a pretty cool friendship and not just one of knowing each other, but one of a huge amount of support. In this podcast, I discuss with Cozzy the influences the coaches have had on him. And he's a tough bugger. He's hard and tough. And Rossi, I remember him saying early days, you give me 100%, I'll back you to the hill. And he stood up, his word was his word. And the effect those concussions had. You get a little clip on the chin from a marking contest that no, you don't get knocked out, no, you're not on the ground, no, you, but you're seeing stars, deja vu, memory loss, go home, talk to somebody, can't remember what happened during the game. And also how Joey Montagna helped him get to his 200th game. So halfway through the first lap, I called Joey over and we stopped to do a bit of a stretch on the fence and I said, how are you feeling little mate? And he goes, all right. I said, good, because you're wearing this for me. I pulled out the GPS pack stuck it in his jumper. I said, don't go too hard, but because they're clearly going to know it's you. A true character of our game, Cozzy finished his career with 200 games for the Saints, credits as a rising star, three heartbreaking grand final losses, and a lifetime of classic stories. It is now Cozzy's fourth year out of footy and in the real world, and he joins me now. We're talking footy. Welcome, Cozzy. G'day, B. Now, I want to take it way back. Obviously, I met you when we were about 18, mm-hmm. but plenty of things have gone on for you to At start. At Billboards, your... was it? I believe it was running around the town. Mm, it was, Remember yes. that humiliating running session? Yes. Up the hills, up and down the hills, the burpees, the medicine balls. Oh, Who was our mutual fitness coordinator? I think it was Craig Harper. Was it? Was he doing some work there as well? Yeah. I and thought I it was think... a bloke called Chris Jones who was there. Well, they must have known each other. Because I think they the... knew your coach. It was basically this, let's get the girls with the boys at the tan on a Saturday morning. Yes. Let's get the girls out in front so the boys run harder. I think that's what it was about. But I just remember you guys, everyone was vomiting everywhere. Like, it was brutal. That's, that, I know it was brutal, but for girls we don't seem to vomit that easily. But for you guys, I remember Nick Revolt just throwing his guts up down the stairs as mm. we were doing it. Yeah, it was... Uh, those Saturday morning sessions were just top up, what they'd call top up session, and you'd say so train all during the week. Yes, you'd go hard, and the Saturday was just the fitness, the 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 fitness coordinators. That was their little free swing without the coaches mm. watching, just to go, okay, boys, this is coming deluxe. <laughs> and it was always showing up. It was either there at the tan, or in that era, we would go down to Sorrento on the back beach of Sorrento. And there's a sand dune that goes up to the – oh, it's yep. a full sand that goes up to the car park. And it was 10 or 12 of those, as hard as you can go. And that doesn't sound like much. But if you're going 80 metres up a sand dune as hard as you can go, the lactic acid was horrendous and not to be gross. But once we got up the stairs and was in that car – we were in the car park, mm. you'd have to walk around there and it was just – 
there would have been 30 little patches of spew everywhere. So, so is it a sign of toughness or weakness if you actually vomited? Oh, it's not. It's certainly not a sign of weakness. But it's, it's but it's a sign that you. It's a sign yourself. that you've pushed yourself to a limit, and you've yeah. you've had a really good go. You go into the boundary. Maybe because netball's indoors. That's where we <laughs> couldn't really do that. Or you didn't push yourself hard enough. Well, there is that. There you go. <laughs> Let's go way back though. Growing up, where did you grow up? I grew up on a wheat farm, fifty k's northwest of Albury, Wodonga. So on the new south side, northwest of Albury, uh, huge backyard. I had 3,000 acres to grow up on and play in, um, an amazing lifestyle I wanted for nothing um, as far as being out and about, learn how to drive and shoot and do all that probably before my time. Yep. Um, yeah, so my family's still involved that. Still, we're still at the farm. My middle brother's just taken over the management of that. Mum and dad are 60. So they're sort of looking to phase out of it. They yep. still live on the farm. I was up there on the weekend. So you've got two brothers? Two brothers, two younger brothers. Uh, You're the old responsible one. I'm the old responsible one. So that doesn't leave for much, does it? <laughs> that concerns me. Yeah, off they go. But uh, the middle brother, he he's, uh, he's a bit of a diesel head, loves his machinery. Uh, the younger one is he actually works for elders. Mm-hmm. He's just been we've just been had got a job back at Narandra, which was an hour north of home. He's been in South Australia for five years, so that's good for the family. We've done the big succession plan, and we've got the farm's going to stay in the in the family. And my kids love going up there. My brothers haven't got kids yet, but I'm sure if they throw enough rocks in the well, it's bound to fill up, <laughs> um, and that will be the next generation of cozies on the on the wheat farm. So, but the wheat farming was obviously there for you to potentially go into after school. Yep. Where did footy come in? Was it something from, you know, two, three years old you had a footy in your hand? Yeah, country town. Look, Brocklesby's probably only got 50 permanent residents. It's made up of the farming community. This The primary school I went to had, I think it would be, it's at one teacher now, maybe under 20 kids. There was about 32 teachers when I went there. So right through primary school with three other three other kids in my class uh, and all you did was footy in the, in the winter, cricket or tennis in the summer, um, footy or netball How do you even have the, enough people winter. to play when you've only got three other people in your class? Yeah, well, you, you learn pretty quick when you're a kid, when you're in kinder or prep or whatever and you're playing against kids in year six, um, you learn... How to be tough. How to be tough straight away. The local, the local footy club only had an under-14s, a seniors and a reserves. So I started playing under-14s when I was nine and then under-14s straight to senior level. Um, played with men at that age. So you learn how to be tough and how to mix it with the big boys, learn all the bad habits as well. So you, you go off the ground and, you know, a can of a can of beer in your hand at 15 years of age. At 15. Isn't uh, that crazy when you think about yeah, that now? Yeah, and that doesn't happen now, thankfully, because we've got some – We've I've, I've actually gone back there this year to, to have a bit of a muck around with my brother and – for a bit of sentimental sake, where, where it all started. You obviously played cricket as well and I've heard you say many times how um, you wish you could be an Australian cricketer. Yeah. What made you choose footy? I was no good at cricket. Oh, well, there you go. So I when was, you're telling me you want to play for Australia and yeah, cricket, well, you're that's no a, good. that's an ambition and I loved <laughs> it and I played at a good level growing up but I was never going to be good enough to play at an elite level because you have to be so good to be that good but... Um, no, footy just footy took hold. Uh, as I said, I was playing some decent 
footy with men at 15 and 16, which gets the attention of some recruiters. Um, the, the Bush Rangers was in our area for the TAC Cup. I was right on the borderline. They used to have the New South Wales ACT Rams. You go north or south, obviously. I was lucky. I feel like I'm lucky that I got the Bush Rangers and the Vic side of it. Yeah. Um, so I can remember the, the invitation coming for that uh, when I was 17, 16, going on 17 into year 12, and I threw it in the bin because I was just – I'm already playing senior footy. I thought I was the full grouse. I'm already grown up. I'm having beers. I'm going to play 300 club games at Brock like Dad did. I'm going to be a farmer, chewing a straw for the rest of my life. And that was it. Dad convinced me. He said, I think you better go and have a go at this. Just see what happens. I rocked up the Bush Rangers training before any cuts, November, 120 kids, all with the tights on and the flash boots mm. and drinking Gatorade and stretching and all this <laughs> and weird stuff. And you wanted stuff. your beer. <laughs> yeah, and I thought, this isn't for me. I stuck at it, made the squad and then, um, yeah, played every game for the Bush Rangers and made the All-Australian side at the Carnival that year and next thing I was I was living in Brighton and kicking a footy around at Moorabbin. You were always, when you were young especially, like touted as like the next best thing and then when did you know you were going to be drafted to the Saints? So in 2000 you went number two. Did you know before that? Did you have a pretty good idea? Yeah, I did know. I had literally no idea and a lot of kids know from 15, 16, 17 that they're in the mix to be drafted. But when you say no, is it someone's coming to speak to you from the club? Do yeah, you have so, a manager at so this I time? Had, like as I was 15, 16, I made no representative sides. Didn't even make interlead sides, no state carnivals. Like, I had mates that were playing in state carnivals and whatever. Got to the Bush Rangers. That's why I thought this is not my go. Mm. And even making the Bush Rangers at the start of that year and getting a game, the penny hadn't dropped. And it was only until the carnival, the state carnival, that things went okay. Managers started knocking on the door, started ringing up the club, the Bush Rangers, started getting in touch with my parents. They were driving stupid Ks from Melbourne. Remember the Richmond guys, the Saints, Collingwood, all these guys driving up, doing an eight-hour round trip to come and have a cup of coffee and see what sort of person you are and meet your family and where you came from, that things started to get real. And that was only a few months out from the draft. Um, and then it got the, the, the buzzword got around and there was this other blonde kid in Queensland that was pretty handy and could run and, and take a mark. And we went to the draft camp together and it was it was quite obvious that we were going to go high. So Nick and I just were joined at the hip from, from that time on. We probably, looking back on it, looked like big heads hanging around together because we <laughs> knew the Saints had, had the first couple of picks. And I think it was about a week out, uh, Brian Waldron and uh, John Beveridge, long-time St Kilda recruiter, drove up to the farm, gave me a, a, a St Kilda jumper and a pair of socks and said, we're going to take you um, next week or next Sunday. Uh, come down and, and that was it, but don't tell anyone. So I had to sit on it for the for a few days out and, um, yeah, the rest is history. And was there hesitation from your family, like your parents who have only known farm life, to let you go to the city to do it? No, no. Look, they, they, were, they were wrapped. Dad's a footy head. Dad loves it um, and mum did. Mum, they backed us three boys. All we did was play sport. Yeah. Um, so... So that was great. They were they were strapped in for the ride and loved it. And um, you know, it's an eight hundred k round trip. Mum and Dad would have seen eighty percent of games in Melbourne. I would have thought even some interstates. I think they ended up Perth might have been the only 
only venue they didn't go to, but yeah, a few right. times they drove over to Adelaide, certainly drove to Bris, uh, Sydney. They definitely saw one in Brisbane. So they got around and followed it um, as much as they could. It was great. And I think that's a, that's the a thing, and your family would have been the same, that you just get so much and the people that they met and they, they got to they, – they went through ten years with the Rewalts and the Del Santos and the Montagnas yeah. and – uh, the Maguires and the Balls and, you know, they're all close friends. They're all family friends. They catch up at, some, at functions and they get just as much out of it as, as you do along yeah. the journey. Yeah, and you sometimes I often think about when you retire, you're, you're ready because it's your thing and you personally have made the decision but they have a bigger loss than what you do because yeah. that's all they've done their whole weekends, their entire life since yeah. you've been around. Yeah, they didn't know what to do. And I, I went back and, and played and had a bit of a muck around at home and they were like, this doesn't seem right because they only had to drive five minutes down the road to watch a game or get involved in the local club again. And, um, yeah, they, they literally revolve their, their winters around up and back from Melbourne for the whole winter. So, um, yeah, it's, it is great that your family gets behind it and it's all good fun for the ride. So back to you and Nick Revolt. He went as number one, you went as number two. Lucky. Lucky. Clearly. How did you know? Did you know that that's how the order was going to be in? I didn't. No, we didn't. Were um, you hoping to go number one? No. No, I wasn't. I, I'd played against Rue in the carnival and he was he was a standout player. Um, I, we, I was New South because we were over the border. He played for Queensland. So we're both in Division 2, so we weren't mixing with the big boys, with the Vic Metros in the country in WA, South Australia. But we played out at Optus Oval. Uh, at opposite ends of the grounds, both as forwards, and he'd taken some stupid like 15 or 18 marks at three-quarter time, and I had to go play on him in the last quarter, and he took another 10 marks or something in the last quarter. So I knew the capabilities of this bloke, um, and then I thought I just don't want to be drafted in front of him because clearly um, he's a superstar and, and he's proved it to the to every, every last inch of his body and his ability and mm. his mental strength. So... Um, so even as a 17-year-old, you were quite aware of the media pressure that would come with being number one? I, 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 not, not really. Only looking back on it, I took it all in my stride a little bit. I wasn't phased with too much and I think that was the benefit of growing up in the country, having early responsibility, playing senior footy early, whatever it is, just um, probably not getting an easy ride, mm. uh, playing on the ground that halfway through winter was a dust bowl that wasn't Xavier College or wasn't, <laughs> you know, these manicured nice grounds that that, uh, that a lot of kids are blessed with. No um, Gatorade. There was no Oz kick. There was no, you know, this is it. Yeah. Kid. There's a jumper, there's your boots, they got to last three years, off you go and rip into it. So I was pretty, pretty casual coming through. What about with Nick? So even though you were teammates, you were obviously friends when you first went down to St Kilda, were you ever competitive with each other? Super. Like almost, I'll never say hatred, but super, super competitive. We, we and you were, lived together too, didn't we you? We lived together for the first three years. Um, so we, we both came from interstate. Um, we were put in a we were put with a host family with Virginia Dunleavy and Brighton. So he'd come from, is this... Like from the, with the board shorts from the Gold Coast, I'd come from the farms, probably still smell like cow <laughs> shit. In the middle of Brighton with uh, uh, like an old, a proper lady <laughs> to cook and clean for us. And we went everywhere together. I had my licence yep. and he had a car. So 
I did the driving in his car. What a great partnership. Back with training. <laughs> we were training at Monash Uni up North Road. So yep. we'd make the trek a couple of times a day from Brighton up to Monash Uni. We did that for the first six months. Uh, competed at everything. We were running together, kicking footies together, the whole lot. He hurt his knee in early in the pre-season that year. I came out and played 20 games in my first year. He was – I don't think he debuted till about round 15 or 16. He only managed six games. Then it was – and he took that really hard. Mm. He was happy for me but uh, there was a stages there where we'd be ships in the night passing each other at home just because of the – you know, he was very envious, yeah. happy but envious uh, that I was playing and he wasn't. And clearly his um, – Clearly we both knew and everybody knew that he was good enough. He was fit. He was in the senior team. Um, there was no cruising through the seconds. We were we were an underperforming side as well. Um, so the next year the, the tables turned. I hurt my back. I only played the first four and then was out. He comes in, rising star. I think he even won the best and fairest in his first year. Um, so we had that. I was on – I knew how he felt. I was walking – out in the morning with the goggles going to the swimming pool and he was going to training after having a game and playing and um, there was a few little times where we didn't speak either. So <laughs> it wasn't until our third year that we both got on the park together. Yeah. Um, you know, and he was quickly becoming the best thing in AFL footy and rightly so because of his talent, his work ethic and what he could bring and his huge determination. But we've um, formed a great relationship over the years and I'm really enjoying him and his twilight of his career, um, obviously coming to the end and, you know. Is when, it the end this year, do you think? Uh, look, honestly, I, I really don't know. He will make that decision. Uh, I think he does uh, earn that right. The club, it's a ruthless game. They may tap him on the shoulder and say that's enough. He might muster enough energy what, to go again. You know the club though. What do you actually think will happen? Like we've, we're hearing at the moment that... Um, you know, it's a, it's a joint decision and that they'll make it behind closed doors. Do you, like if you were in Nick's position, would you play on? I, I think knowing Nick, if I was in Nick's position, probably not. Um, I think you can go one, one too many. But yeah. knowing Nick uh, and the ultra competitive person he is, he won't want to be tapped on the shoulder. He'll want to make the decision. Yeah. He'll want to go again. He thrives on it. He thrives on the challenge, the competitiveness of it. And if he did, I'd back him 100%. I think... He would go away, he'd get himself in the right frame of mind, the right condition to be ultra competitive again and go out on his terms. Even if he does it this year, he'll still be going out on his terms at the top of his game. The Saints, unfortunately, will get dragged into their inconsistent performances, Mm. um, but he's still at his best, elite. you know, With a pretty shocking a knee injury, doesn't he? And he's had it for so long. Yeah, but and, able and to the thing it. is that the knee that he's carrying this year isn't even his bad one. Oh, he really? hyperextended his other one early in the year, which has severely affected his kicking and the way he pulls up. So, you know, people just are quick to judge. But you put yourself out there, you're fit to play. Um, very quick to judge. But, yeah, uh, whatever happens. Okay, enough about Nick. This is actually meant to be about you. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go back to your debut, your first ever game. Yeah. Who'd you play? Played the Eagles. Um, the Eagles at Etihad Stadium, which was then Colonial, I think. Colonial mm. Stadium. So that was round three, 2001. Round three, 2001. Uh, might have even been Easter. Easter Sunday. Um, back then, 
if you sat on the bench, you'd probably still sit there for a quarter or a yeah. half. It wasn't the uh, the big rotations are high and tense now. It was against the Eagles and I remember running out there next to Stuart Lowe. It was Spider Everett's 150th. Um, he ran through the banners, 150 games for the Saints. Stuart Lowe was in the forward line um, and Ashley McIntosh came and stood next to me. And Ashley McIntosh has been a hero since I was a kid. He was a machine, double premiership player for the Eagles, 10 years, 200 games plus, and he's standing next to me. I'm thinking, what is going on here? How has this happened? <laughs> were, you, um, were you really nervous? Oh, I can't remember. Or just more nervous. like excited. Just, yeah, this is, this is pretty surreal and weird. Um, and then uh, we, we, were getting, we were getting beaten. I came off. Michael Gardner went forward out of the ruck and he was playing forward. And I got changed back to play on Gardner. I remember thinking to myself, oh, great, he's a big, tall, gangly bloke. He'll be slow. I'll be able to keep up with him. That's okay. First time the ball comes down, Gardy takes off to the wing as hard as anything and I'm like a gazelle. He was bloody quick and left me in my shadows. And I think, welcome to the big time, boy. Um, and I don't mind saying that because Gardy's a good mate now and yeah. ended up playing with him for, for four or five years. But for a man that size, 105, 6, probably 110 kilos, 6 foot 6, the way he moved was just my first introduction to AFL footy. Like, I thought, Whoa. wow, <laughs> this bloke is uh, moves like a gazelle at this this size. What am I up for? Now, there's always teammates that stand out and I know I have them in my career that when you, I don't know, play your first game or play your last game, there's teammates that you just know have your back and really help you and support you in, in all different kinds of ways. Who was that teammate for you when you first started? Uh First started, I was really fortunate to come through with a great crop of, of guys that were all similar age. Um, Grant Thomas, Malcolm Blight was my first coach. Yeah. Who was, it was quite headline grabbing. The, the New St Kilda board had, had gone and lured him out of retirement for a million dollars a year, whatever it was, a couple of million bucks, whatever it was. <laughs> the Messiah comes down. He was pretty non-existent at training. Um, really? Clearly... Was there for the cash and not not for for what it was. So a lot of so your assistant coaches would be the ones taking. Yeah, they the were the ones taking training. We didn't actually touch the footies before Christmas. All we did was one k time trial laps. Um, anyway, out, out at Monash. Um, what was the question? We were talking about like teammates. Oh, teammates. So Grant Thomas and Rod Butters had formed the board. Tomo was a director of footy at mm-hmm. that stage. He came in when they sacked Blighty after 15 rounds as a coach for the, for the end of the year and ended up getting the job. The right man for it. He was very, and still is, he's an exceptional people manager. He could tell he had a lot to do with the recruiting and the position that we're in, a lot of top draft picks. So in that era, bought in the Del Santos, Montagna, Maguire, uh, Xavier Clark, myself and Nick, Brendan Goddard, Lenny, Lenny was already there, Lenny Hayes and a few of those guys of that era. So all those guys were fantastic because they were young, raw, talented, great people, come from great um, great families, backgrounds. They had a lot of integrity and um, they had a lot of a great morale about it. Mm. Uh, as far as coming in, Harvey Lowe Burke were the three um, bona fide St Kilda champions. Um, Haas was the captain, Andrew Thompson's another one. But the, probably the biggest impact that was 
from Fraser Gehrig and Aaron Hamill, and they came at the same time. Saints went on a huge, huge drive. They knew that they had a couple of early draft picks and they went on a big list transformation. They went and spent up and got Hamill from Carlton, Gehrig from uh, West Coast, who were big, high-profile, mid-20s at the peak of their game. Uh, come from hugely successful clubs in the 90s, Carlton and the Eagles. And they really – they were the catalyst in turning the turning the, the team or the side and the culture on its head. This is how you train, boys. This is how you prepare. Let's jump on the back of that. Um, and I remember – and Fray's, Fray's from Wodonga. Yeah. So I, I didn't know him. He was five or six years older than me. And clearly he'd played 100-odd games and been in, in Perth but knew he was from local area. So we had that sort of in common mm-hmm. and he was like a big brother for a long time. Um, they were great. Aaron – and I remember Aaron was just ruthless in his um, – well, both were but it, Aaron was ruthless in his approach to training and almost like I don't care what your birth certificate says. Come on, kid. Let's rock and roll. There's the ball. Go get it and I'll punch you if you don't get it and I'll punch you <laughs> while you're getting it and we'll fight and scrap and whatever. You can't do it to the kids nowadays because they go tell their mum and then <laughs> their mum rings the player development manager <laughs> and then the player development manager tells the coach and then you get in trouble. But we sort of got the end of the 90s and that still, you know, let's go and rough them up a little bit, which was fantastic for us. It was great. Taught us how to compete straight away. Instantly had respect for those two blokes and they were – they were huge in, in our development and where we ended up. And so there was a core group of those young boys, like you'd mentioned, all your mates, and you grew up together at this club. Who's the driving force behind the strength that you became? Was it the Grant Thomas when he came in? Was it the way he coached and the way he empowered you all? Yep. Was it Fraser Garrick and Aaron Hamill? I think all of the above. Um, Harv's, Rob Harvey was always uh, a fan. Obviously a fantastic leader. He had the runs on the board. He's uh, look, boys, do as I do. My work ethic, my preparation, the whole lot. Um, Lowy, Stewie Lowe and Nathan Burke had been there but I think they only played another two years with that era. Yeah. So they sort of had minimal impact, like clearly great leaders and great people around the place. Um, but then the next wave came. Tomo really had a great strategy. Tomo was like more than a coach. He went above and beyond he was like a father mm. we had countless countless barbecues like he, he's already got eight kids of his own but he'd throw his doors open i can remember him putting on a mark putting a marquee up on his tennis court might have been for a milestone halves as 250 or something like that on a sunday has everybody and their families partners the whole lot like hundreds of people in his backyard on the tennis court full catered the whole lot like like a country club and that that's what he 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 demanded that we always eat together. Yeah. Like that's the time. And it was before mobile phones were around. Yeah. Text message was before probably just starting but there was no Twitter, yeah. there was no Instagram, no one's sitting on their phones all day. It was real interaction over um, a meal and a beer at the right time. Yeah. And I think Tomo really revolutionised that whole that whole camaraderie and he, he said, remember him banning the footy trip in our first year, 2001, said he got wind of it, that there was a few, you know, there's a few things. And it, Were you shattered about I was that shattered. at the time? <laughs> Your got first there year? And the boys had just got back from Thailand when we first started training and hearing all these stories. And I thought, oh, I can't wait at the end of the season, go on a footy trip. <laughs> Being a country boy and liking a beer and all that sort of stuff. And Tomo said, and, and I, his, his words always ring 
and it was, why would you go on a footy trip and get on the piss and slap each other each other on the back when we're going to finish second last, third last? Mm. Why would you go and celebrate mediocrity and blow wind up each other's ass? How about we don't go on a footy trip, we come back and we train hard and we get somewhere and we try and celebrate that? And he said the trade-off will be... The first trip that he took us on was to start pre-season to Warrnambool. He's a local legend in Warrnambool, coach Warrnambool Footy Club, the three or four flags in a row before his business venture, whatever that was. Um, he took us down there. He made us take our push bikes. We went down on the train. We all took our push push bikes and we basically did a community training camp. We trained at the Warrnambool Oval, trained our asses off but – we were in the hospitals, we were in the primary schools, we were at the local whatever club, yep. bowls club, doing the whole lot, getting amongst the community, saying, boys, this is what real life's about. Yeah. Let's be grateful about what we're doing. Let's train hard. Let's go back to Melbourne with that really good base. base. Yep. And, and that was the catalyst for the AFL probably with the local community-based camps, which, which still now happens. Which now compulsory, aren't they? And now compulsory for every club. He up. He ramped it up the following year to start the 2004 season. So October 03, he said he went to a couple of high-profile board members, whatever, executives with a bit of cash and said, I want to take the boys to Europe. Thought it would never float, got the money and we went to London for three weeks and through some contacts of his world training with Lord Seb Coe, Daly Thompson. <laughs> so that was pre-season camp? That was pre-season camp. In London? In London. We had three weeks there. 20, 21-year-old kids in London. We did orienteering. Yep. Was like, okay, we need – everyone's got a camera before – I think camera phones were there. Like so an they had actual, the old camera. actual camera. <laughs> we said, okay, we need you to get six of these landmarks, say so like Big Ben, Westminster Abbey, the big – the eye, the whatever it is, the, the big London Ferris eye. wheel. <laughs> so we almost did a training leadership exercise. You guys, okay, get out in the middle of London – we get to see everything plus leadership, the whole yeah. show, blah, blah, blah. And we are trying Colin Jackson, Olympic gold medalist. Um, there was a couple of boxers we were training with. I remember running up up the grounds of um, Windsor Castle. Like the full wow. – Like four or five kilometres of just pure grass up the mm. – up the and, and Seb Coe was running beside us teaching us how to pace ourselves for like three-minute Ks, whatever. Yeah. And we did about three of them and we're cooked. We're yeah. knackered. And he's just sitting there <laughs> having broken sweat. Yeah, he's just running a tracksuit. <laughs> but that was a life-changing experience. Mm. The, the year after he took us to South Africa mm. and we were over there for a, nearly a month and then we went to China, like in the back blocks of uh, like a city called Guangzhou or Wangzhou or something like that. Total <laughs> filthy industrial yuck where they're eating snakes and rabbits and dogs on the – on the footpath, we're over there at the Institute of Sport watching these five-year-old girls that were in there straight out of school, Chinese girls at the Institute of Sport, going up a 10-metre platform, diving, make a splash and being flat at themselves and oh, going wow. and doing it again and going and doing it. Now I've got a five-year-old boy who's too busy playing his iPhone or his whatever and if his wheat bits aren't, aren't warm, he gets the bracing bits. Mm-hmm. Let alone, like, we just saw... Life-changing experiences while we're doing it, and it really set up the and what we had for. And 10 did years. you realise that at the time, or it's only in hindsight now that you appreciate? No, I think we did realise at the time, but clearly more now. And it was hindsight. more than just footy, wasn't it? It it almost wasn't about footy. Yeah, like it was about 
a life experience and mm. going over the camaraderie, the you've yeah. got to get yourselves through this, whatever challenge gets put up, deal with it. Yeah. Like I remember going to China and very, very communist country then and a huge – the communism in this city was just so rife. Like we remember I'm six foot five mm. walking down the street in the market with these Chinese people, they thought you are an alien. But they well, we had kids following us around <laughs> taking photos. Like what planet are you from, mate? Who are these freaks? Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and nobody spoke a word of English. So yeah. we had these cards of where we were staying. So if we ventured out, uh. like for a cab driver, you'd say hello, you just look at you like you're, you're an idiot. Yeah. So we had these cards to show the cab driver or someone how to get home. Like it was, it was pretty crazy. And the one thing that stands out to me, I've met Tomo a few times and I was always fascinated and I think our netball coach had copied what he'd done when you implemented the rotating captains, mm. well, not you personally, when Tomo did. Yep. How was that taken as a group? Because it was where, how long were you captain for a year and then they rotated it to the next player? Yep. so Tomo's whole philosophy, we'd had the leading team stuff um, I think they were still around then, but Tomo's philosophy after the leadership group was he didn't want to create a pecking order and a cigar club, you know, I'm the captain, he's the vice captain, whatever whatever goes. He wanted to promote leadership and not let anybody get comfortable. So a yeah. system where when you're the captain you've got to be the best for 50 weeks of the year, for the whole lot um, and you can be knocked off at any stage. So the leadership group and the captain were voted in by the players. Rob Harvey was captain at the time, rightly so, probably the best player in the league, let alone the club. He was a captain and, and he went to halves with it and said, I want to, I don't want you to be captain. And to Rob's credit, um, and, you know, very, very humble man, yep. he said he got it, okay, I can stand aside mm-hmm. to promote somebody else. And the whole reason was... Okay, if Aaron Hamill's captain this year, he's had the experience and had the responsibility to lead the team for 12 months. Then he moves aside, then it's Lenny Hayes, then it's Luke Ball, then it's Nick Rewalt, whatever. And all of a sudden over five years, you've got five guys that are in there, you've got five captains and not one. Mm. You know, it's not a hierarchy. Yeah, so you don't need the title to actually go the out there You don't need the title to be because, be you know, leader. Rob Harvey's not going to change his ways. No. Just because he hasn't got the title and he's not flipping the coin. So... That was extremely effective and it was voted in and I'm, I'm pretty sure Aaron Hamill was the first to be voted in. 03, 04 might have been Nick or Lenny, probably Lenny I think, and mm-hmm. Lenny got the chance to be captain at 23 years of age. Yeah. You know, when if the other guys held it, Lenny just probably doesn't have to step up that little bit more. So his, his development as a person, as a player, as a leader, as a, a preparer, um, as a role model, as a citizen, as everything has to improve because of that situation. So off he goes. I think Rue was 05, Luke Ball 06 and then that was the end of Tomo. Mm. Rossi Lyon came in and went and after We're that. We're changing that. The best, the best player, the best leader is the captain, the best players and the best leaders are in the leadership group. And, and with Tomo's uh, system... There was almost the leadership group was almost the second tier leaders that made them stand up. Like guys like Hamill, Garrick, Harvey, and all that were like they sat off to the side as far as the structure of leadership goes. Mm. It's more like advisory, you know. It gave the likes of Ball, Hayes, myself, Del Santo, these guys a chance to be, be a part of the leadership group and make critical decisions of where the side 
and you were going as young men. Uh, out of all the captains that you this did. This is way too serious. I know, isn't it? Don't worry. We're I'm actually quite lighthearted. Are you okay? Are yeah, you coping with this? Like up. You are <laughs> getting very restless because I know it's not your thing to sit still Sound for this like long. <laughs> Sorry about this. Um, who was the best captain that you played under? Um, Nick. Yeah, Nick. Just because of his longevity, um, they were all good. Lenny was a great captain. Um, not many players, and this is the great thing about that system, that that I played under Harvey, Hamill, Hayes, Rue, Luke Ball yeah, in 06. So five captains. Then then Ross came back. When Ross came in seven, then Rue was the captain. I captain for last year. Yeah. So longest serving captain I played under was Nick. Um, and, and this system gave me the chance to be captain. Yeah. Nick broke his arm, broke his collarbone early round one. 2005 and was going to miss – he missed four, four or five weeks. So was I the next best in line? No. Did I have the next best credentials? No because there was still Garrick, Hamill, Harvey, all these guys that could quite easily do it. But because of the system was set up and I was in the leadership group, Tommy goes, righto, the reins are yours, off you go. And it gives you a chance to develop. All of a sudden you've got added responsibility and off you go. So, Did you enjoy it? Loved it. Yeah, Absolutely because I reckon it. that's what people underestimate about you and the more I've got to know you, the more I realise how you do have those leadership skills and you are so passionate more than a lot of players. Um, but your passion also is directed a lot at the younger players, like making sure they're all okay. Yeah. Like is that a country thing do you think or where did you learn that? Yeah, I, I, I don't really know. I, um, I, I do, you're right. I've I, I found that a lot. In my last couple of years, when I knew the the writing's on the wall, mm. your body's failing you, you you mentally just had enough. Especially in my last year, uh, got dropped. You're playing the twos. You, there was a I sulked for a little while. Yeah, like I think like everybody does. Yeah. Um, missed round one in my, in my last year, 2013. Wasn't picked for the first game to go up the Gold Coast, and you run around at Sandy Zebras, just going, "What's happened? What's happening?" And, and all of a sudden, I could. After sulking for a couple of weeks, I was like, okay, I can play this out as the grumpy old bloke um, that nobody wants and nobody remembers and wants to do or you can turn into a bit of a positive and play with some kids, teach them some things, be a, a, a role model. And the thing that hit home was talking to some of these young kids at training or before the game and then going out and playing with them and seeing them do it in a game was such a proud feeling mm. and it was just – it was – Absolutely a better feeling than you doing it yourself. You taking a mark, kicking a goal, doing something was it was such a good feeling in yeah. in doing that. So And it takes the pressure off yourself, yeah, doesn't it? And 100%. I just wish and I've heard you say it before that I wish we had have known that when we were kids yeah, starting out. But yeah. you've got to learn it, don't yeah. you, in and your that's own just, way. That's just life, isn't it? It's just and and Tomo's big thing was if you learn how to be captain and coach while you're still playing, yeah. all of a sudden you've got this this big engine that is just driving itself and there's no hierarchy, there's no the, – the, the 30th guy on the list hasn't got uh, any fear to speak up to a couple of guys that are so-called guns. They, they're holding them accountable for their actions on and off the ground. Um, it's just a really healthy competitive environment that just weeds out the crap. Yeah, absolutely. You, know, you, don't, you don't hang around. But the thing is you hear people say that's how you want the club and that's – 
how you want to be seen and all of that. But yeah. to actually be able to do it and implement it is another thing. Yeah. And that's where I really admire Tomo with how he empowered you all to be able to run the club like that. Yeah. He, he just said, look, and he might mind me saying this, but he he's actually a real – he's a control freak. <laughs> but he was almost – he's like – and I remember him saying, a good leader makes himself redundant, mm. which, okay, if, I, if you can make all this work themselves – it looks like or from the outside or whatever that he's in control of everything. He wanted to run the whole show but his MO at the end of the day was making everybody else come up within and making himself redundant. The, the, the playing group was basically running themselves. Hey, what do you get when you cross a news journal? Three retired footy players and a comedian. It's the kick. Nick, you fell in love over the summer. I fell in love Thursday night. Who with? Dustin Martin. Oh, I'll fight you for it. On Saturday night, join Luke Darcy, Matthew Richardson, Cameron Ling, Sam Lane and Richmond tragic Mick Malloy. It's a For a show with a difference. It's been overturned and it is a point. Well, who said it was a goal? <laughs> it's The Kick, every Saturday night, live and free on the channels of Seven. I want to talk about your concussions because you've had quite a few over the years. Um, you know, especially the huge hit with Daniel G and Syracuse. Um, but also probably the one that got everybody's attention was the interview that you did where Not far from here. Yeah. It was on Channel the balcony 7. of Channel 7 right here. And so was that the morning after a game? No. No, I was still not playing. So that was after the G and Syracuse hit? Yep. Yep. A couple yep. of weeks later? Yep. Still not playing. So You're doing a live interview? Clearly a very – probably the darkest darkest day of, of footy, um, my footy. Um, yeah. The, the worlds didn't collide that day. They uh, – it all went pretty pear-shaped pretty quick. So David um, Schwartz is interviewing you? Yeah. Um, and all of a sudden the, my vision, tunnel vision just came in and I can remember my eyesight closing down and um, it just becoming black in the corners of my eyes and everything narrowing down to a little dot and then just the next thing I was on the ground. So what do you reckon is going through Rocket's mind? Uh, look, hopefully he, he can get through that and uh, he'll get through it and he'll get through it. <laughs> Now, Kaczynski was rushed to hospital where he had scans which did show that everything was OK and he was later sent home. St Kilda says there's no link between today's incident and the fractured skull that Justin received six weeks ago. Yeah, a, a very significant, bad and significant day and moment in, in my footy life and career. And that whole year, that 2006, right from that hit, uh, took a different, different direction. So... 05, um, I probably had only played maybe 14 or 15 games in 05, but it was mm. the opportunity to to be captain when Rue was injured. Probably played my best footy that year. Uh, the end of 05 had a, a major operation on my knee, like a, a patella. Um, that realignment? Yeah, like a realignment and they called it a bit of scarifying. They, they cut it up and scarred it so it would be stronger. So I had some really bad tendonitis and few other things with a no PCL and a bit of wear mm. and tear. And it was quite – it was a long rehab. So I did no running, no strength work pre-Christmas, very limited um, preparation post-Christmas. 
which led into another couple of niggling injuries. No reserves footy. Played round two, I think, over in Port Adelaide. Was my first game straight into the seniors. Um, Hurt my groin and had the next week off. Then that came good and played the dogs at Etihad Stadium with maybe four quarters, four and a half quarters of footy under my belt since the September Mm. before. Went out that day clearly underdone. Um, and, and, you know, it's a very – the competitive arena is very, very lonely when you're not sharp, when you're not fit, when you haven't trained and prepared for it. Oh, great shepherd from Gian Syracuse. Put Kaczynski down. They're both down. He kicks towards the goal square. It was a wonderful shepherd there from Gian Syracuse. Kaczynski is out. Let's have a look at it. Here it is here. Fair and square by my reckoning. Yes, it was. Clash of heads. Was it? Clash of heads. Well, Gian Syracuse is up, and the umpire just stopping proceedings here because... There's Eagleton in the background, Kaczynski chasing, and the hit from Gene Syracuse. Stretcher onto the ground now, Chris. Okay. You've got a feel for this young man. He just cannot take a trick, can he? Yeah, he's had no luck. and uh, No luck at all. That's a terrible, terrible sight. And that's what happened. Um, You know, awareness all goes out of it. G goes to shove me off the ball with clash heads, and I'm having to sleep out in the wing. and then the next few months that that led after that was looking back on it, it, it was horrendous. I was yeah. um, headaches, fractured my skull and busted my eardrum and headaches and all sorts of stuff going on. And then the incident on TV um, turned me a little bit hermit. I was didn't want to go down the street, didn't want to talk to anybody. Mm-hmm. That's when you were really aware, wasn't it, of the media attention? The media attention, uh, shied right away from it, didn't want to have anything to do with it. But And previous to that, I quite enjoyed it. I mm. quite, uh, and the attention that it got, I couldn't understand it and when are you playing again and what's going on. Because it would be scary too. And there's too. a bit of controversy going on around about like the whole collapse and then came yeah. back with the... Uh, as a club doing the right thing by you, you doing the right thing by your preparation. I came back, played in the twos with a stupid-looking helmet on, <laughs> still underdone and not physically or mentally fit to be out there, run into the back of an umpire like only I could do, yeah. knock my teeth out, out cold again because the media were there. It was a cold, wet, mongrel day. I was playing reserves of AFL footy at Williamstown. So that happens. So you couldn't... I ended up getting a bloody. I got a bloody week. I had to go to the tribunal for running into the umpire. (laughs) So here I am, no teeth at the tribunal, at the VFL tribunal, and got a week for running an umpire. I'm thinking, only you. Could this get? Could this get any worse? And I'm thinking, whatever. But got over that. Tomo said, right, that's enough of twos footy. Let's just bang you straight back in when you're ready. You know, when you're ready. And and me, I'm telling them all the right things. Deep down, I'm like. I'm not ready. I don't want to play. But I want I'm to not play. right. But, you know, no, no fault of the clubs, no fault of, of the coaching staff, whatever. I'm telling them what they want to hear. Pardon the pun, but I'm making a decision with my heart, not my mm. head. Mm. We're round the mark. We lost the prelim finals 04, 05. We're round the mark. Finals campaign coming up. Man up, son. Get out there and rip into it. Most horrendous five weeks ever was just the anxiety and the, uh, the, the being terrified, running up the race thinking who's coming from where, not even thinking about getting a kick, mm. not even thinking about touching the footy, just 
tr please just get through without an incident, without hurting something, without breaking your leg, without that. And that was the whole lead up to those five weeks of footy, um, which which led me to hating the game. Yeah. Like, hating the position I was in, hating the controversy, the and, you know, having a, a sour taste for the media, uh, having a sour taste for why I couldn't perform, why I couldn't do what I wanted to do, the game, the whole lot. Just totally f fell out of love with the whole lot. Did you ever want to stop playing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, lose a final at the MCG to Melbourne that year and we were knocked out first round. That week, Tomo gets the flick. What's going on? Like, Yeah. Could have quite easily walked away from the game right there. When you, when you hear about now, concussion is almost a really fashionable word for a good reason because there's obviously so much more medical research that goes into it and um, everyone's a lot more aware of how just even one concussion, how much damage it can do in the future. Do you wish that they knew that back then when you were going through it? Um, yeah, I do for the safety and, you know, there's a lot of times I shouldn't have been out there. Mm. Um, but, you know, I'd go through a stage where I'd get a little clip on the chin from a marking contest that, no, you don't get knocked out, no, you're not on the ground, no, you're – but you're seeing stars, deja vu, memory loss, go home, talk to somebody, can't remember what happened during the game, the whole lot. But you're just putting on a brave face, yep, I'm fine, yeah. no worries, let's rock and roll. Yeah. Um, if they had the rules in now, I wouldn't have played a lot of footy. <laughs> um, no, you wouldn't have. But – you know, even the years following that seven and eight, um, I, I you know have a lot of lot of games where you get little knocks, little um, innocuous knocks in a in a contest, a pack or whatever, just a, a a stray elbow here or there or a good bump, and I can remember my my eyes going, you mm. know, the blurry blurred vision, deja vu, what am I doing here, going home. Dad had asked me something about the game. I'm like, oh, did we play today? Like, oh, you know. wow. So. Um, your, your parents must have been really worried. Yeah, and they were great support. Um, Tomo was was sacked at the end of 2006 that year. I was sort of, I breathed out. That mm. year's over. Hated footy. Um, Ross came in and was a real breath of fresh air and, and he understood that and I can clearly remember him coming in and wanting to sit down with me What's your, what's your view? And I was really open and honest with, with where I was at with it all and how I felt about the game and myself and mm. um, the whole lot. And, and he just said, you know, Jesus, you're, you're, a, shot, you're a shot footballer. You're, you're 24 years old. You, you don't like where you are. You, you, and, you know. Um, and he said, well, we've got to get you to like the game again. We, we want to get you to like yourself again. We want you to... Um, how about you just come and start training with no guarantees and really just stripped it back for me and said, look, if you get through this session, how about you go again? If you get through this, 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 and if you get to March and you feel like having a practice game, let's put you out there and see what happens. So that was, that was exactly like how what I you rebuilt. needed at the time. Oh, that's what I needed. It was not looking forward. It wasn't looking backwards. It was just being present, a new young coach that was enthusiastic, some great teammates that were backing you and – I just managed to put together a, a pretty solid pre-season, come out and played and then had some really good continuity, 07, 08, 9, 10, 11. Yeah. You know, I didn't really miss a lot of footy in those years. 
Well, just before we let go of the whole concussion thing, do you still do you feel effects from it today? Now that you've been out of the game a little while, um, I, I certainly got. I, I certainly feel like my long term memory is sharp. I, I, I feel like sometimes my short term memory lets me down a little bit. Um, like it's just some conversations that I've had yesterday, a couple of hours ago. If I don't write it down, take a note, yep. I can I can lose it pretty quick. Um, yeah. I, does it worry you? Yeah, yeah, it does. Um, and is there any like are there sort of almost? Uh, I don't know whether you're back in me in a corner or not, but no, I'm, I'm not. I'm, um, <laughs> it worries I'm me rela- for you. Well, I'm almost reluctant. I just there's something in me that just doesn't want to know. Yeah. You know, and you see stuff, you see Greg Williams come out a few mm. years ago, whatever show he was on, you know, and he can't remember the middle names of his daughters and all that stuff yeah. and a bit of onset Alzheimer's and all this sort of stuff and, um, you know, it, it really does worry me. Yeah, down. it's scary, 100%. Yeah. But, like, there are there things that um, do the AFL Players Association, like, do they offer... Yeah, look, it's all there and I've probably stupidly been not involved in any testing or, or mm. whatever. So, Do you look at players like Paddy McCartan now for the Saints who I think he's 21 and he's been concussed six times in the last couple of years. Um, you know, what advice would you have for him? Well, it's really hard because he's he's in the fishbowl of it and I... He's taken some long time off now, is that right? Yeah. I, I, my advice is to just go and make sure he's 100% right, be 100% honest with the guys that know their stuff, with the doctors, with the neurologists, with whoever he's talking to, be really 100%. Don't, don't cloud over anything. Yeah, listen to the medical staff. Listen to what they're doing. Listen to what your body's telling him. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I do feel for him. And he's... I've only met him a few times. He's he's post my my time there. What I've seen of him, how I've spoken to him, his parents. He's a great kid, lovely parents, great family, great upbringing. He's a kid from from rural reports. He's a kid that he's a sponge for knowledge. He wants to work. Mm. He wants to work hard. He's a great talent, and yeah, I think everything will click for him. I hope it works out well. Let's move on because <laughs> I can see you looking at me with, like, Bianca, what are you doing? Okay. Have spoken about this, B, much? Whoa. Let's go on to old mate Ross Lyon. What did he bring to the table other than what you've already said when he first came in? What about those years when you were the most successful that you had been as a club, getting into the grand finals? I know, again, I don't want to always reach for this painful right. time it's for you. It's, it's real. So it's, it, it happens. happens. So you, you speak about it and you can't change it. So that's fine. Ross uh, Ross came in, was just very clear on where he wanted to go. Ross's greatest strength was that he along, like he almost, he complimented what Tomo had already set up. Mm. Tomo had set up this um, So young, Tomo built it? Yep. And I think Ross... Continue to build it and kept the the machine going. And Ross never Ross never put himself above anybody. And he he gave the players and the leadership group buy-in straight away. And he was always stood up and he said, "I'm a young coach. Um, you guys are where the rubber meets the road. You're out there. You're doing it. What's your feedback? I'm here. I'm I'm charged with the responsibility of." 
keeping you accountable. Mm. You've, you've set a roadmap. You've set a plan on where to go. You clearly know where you want to go. My, my responsibility is if I see you go off track is to pull you back in a line. But you guys are there. He said, I'm not going to ever undermine Robert Harvey. You're a better player than I was. Lenny, Rue, Fraser Garrick's still there. You guys tell me, I'll just help you facilitate it. And he's a tough bugger. Mm. He is hard and tough. And Rossi, I can remember him saying early days, if you give me 100%, I'll back you to the hill. And he stood up. His word was his word. And that's exactly what he got. And, like, I, I compliment and credit him to helping me like the game again, giving me the confidence to get back out there and play no matter what my form was like, injury you were carrying, whatever, he backed you to the hilt and that was just so important as a player-coach relationship um, that you knew that he had you back and at different stages when you're playing with injury and maybe not capable of doing what you could and the media were coming at you from all sorts of angles but you were playing a role within the team structure that he would just flick the media off, he'd flick the naysayers off, he'd just keep backing and just keep going. If you underperformed, if you weren't living up to the expectation of inside those four walls, he'd be straight on your back pretty hard, which was great and I loved uh, to keep you accountable for what you're doing. Did um, the young kids, especially coming through then, now that you'd become one of the older players, could they handle that type of I would have, coaching? Uh, from all reports, he's relaxed a little bit now. But oh, from really? Then, <laughs> yeah, from then he was... He was, he was a very hard taskmaster and, and what you needed to be and he drove the young kids ruthlessly, mm. um, you know, to the point where they were going into meetings probably petrified of not having the right answer but it made them good and he's he had a way of weeding out and, and our whole philosophy and his motto and what the team built was this is where we're going. We want to be a great side. We don't want to celebrate mediocrity. Act your way in or act your way out. And that was the whole line of it. You go toe the line, do this to in within our parameters and act your way into the team and what we're about. I'll back you and you'll stay. Act your way out. Don't do what we're doing. Don't conform to what we're about. See you later. And it was easy to pick and drop yeah. players. And you did have success in that. You got to the grand finals and I know it hurts that you didn't ever get to win one but – what was he like, you know, when you lost that first grand final? What was he like after that to be able to pick up the pieces and get you going again? Tomo, um, Tomo, sorry, Rossi, he openly tells a story. He said it publicly after 09. It was devastating to lose 09 because mm. we just, something clicked, something gelled. All that hard work for eight or nine years and then what Ross had implemented, 07 and 08, it, it just clicked. Um, and we won 19 on the trot. And it was just, looking back on that year is just phenomenal. The feeling, the euphoria, the walking up the race, looking at each other, almost arrogantly going, not are we going to win tonight, how much? Yeah. Are we going to be four goals up a quarter time or five goals up? Like, and it was just had some of the... the you just believed, didn't some you? Of the, so the much. belief in what we were doing and playing your role and everyone's... Um, everyone's ability would kick in after a bit of hard work and whatever and, and we'd come on Monday and you, you didn't want to be on the highlights tape for kicking a goal from the boundary from 40. You wanted to feature in the hard and tough efforts that were tackles, smothers, chases and our whole game was built on that and we'd 
I mean, annihilated sides. And the sides that were around the mark, the Geelong, Collingwood and these sides of that era were just some of the biggest battles ever. Like 09, 13, round 13 and 14, we were 12 or 13 zip each, undefeated. And a play at Eddie had in front of a packed house on Saturday night was just an epic game. It was it was a better game than some of the finals played in. Mm. Um, and then to go all the way and end up playing Geelong in the grand final on you know on a wet day, go down by a kick was it, there's no other way to package it up. It's just devastating. It hangs for Mooney, poking it in the rook direction, and he can go back and he can have a shot, and surely any score will do it now. Wonderful kick by Mooney. Vindication has arrived. They have won their second in three years. And what a fight it was. Rossi tells the story, back to where I was going before, that I think it was maybe October, mid-October, he was sitting up in his office and he himself said he was still wallowing in it a little bit. Everyone had gone away, done their thing, and you're dragging your ass a bit. And he said one day that he... And this probably adds to the legend of Lenny Hayes, but he was sitting in his office and he looked out over on the wing at Moorabbin and he was like, there's a bloke over there with his shirt off and he's doing sprints. And he's like, what's this bloke up to? He didn't know who it was because we're out over the other side. And he's like, watched him for a little bit and he's gone, that's bloody Lenny. <laughs> and Lenny had, had, you know, got himself up to go down to the club six or eight, it might have been four weeks after the grand final and here he is flogging himself up and down the wing. And Ross goes, all right. If Lenny can get up and get motivated and active about it, so can I. And that started him again. Yeah. And then all of a sudden he's up and about. You're getting phone calls, texts off him. The whole club was, let's get back to training and let's right the wrong. You know, let's let's uh, cash in on what we've uh, what we've created over the last few years. Not many left after that. I think Steve King might have been finished after out of that 09 granny, but. Um, most others were ready to go again and so we embarked on the 2010 campaign, you know, which famously ends in a draw. Goddard, the tap, Del Santo, it's going to be a draw. It's unbelievable. But it's happened. And then... To again have that second disappointment of the draw going into that next week. Yeah. How do you get yourself up for that? Like, I, I know a lot of the players who have been a part of that game, both Collingwood and St Kilda players, have spoken about, you know, that time. But I, what was Ross Lyon actually saying to you boys? Um, oh, look, I, I can't really remember the, the dialogue too much during the week. It was all about. Not, not to, not, it's not an excuse. You know, we weren't good enough on the day, but. In the leading up to the second one, we were very injured. We were mm. cooked. Like I can remember reserves players coming back to make the numbers up at training just be, purely because we couldn't get out there. Yeah, and you personally had injuries too, didn't you? Had you had a busted ankle. So I'd played a lot of the last half of the year with a busted ankle. Um, so wasn't up to training after the grand final. Um, that, that whole story was, you know, we almost had no right to be in the grand final that year because I... You, you might have to correct me, and I don't. I think we snuck into fourth place on the la, on round twenty two on the results of round twenty two. Mm-hmm. I think so. We get Geelong who would finish on top in the first final, massive underdogs, and we mustered up 
an effort to beat them by a goal or two at the end, which, which flipped the whole final series on its head, which meant Geelong and Collingwood, the best two top sides for the year, couldn't play each other in the prelim. Uh, they had to play each other in the prelim. They couldn't go on opposites and meet each other in the granny. We go straight to a prelim from fourth to yep. get the dogs, um, which weren't the big feat of playing a Geelong or Collingwood in the prelim, you know, which might have pulled us up, probably yep. would have, mm. um, looking back on it and being honest. So we get the dogs in the prelim, overcome them by th- two or three, four goals, can't remember the, the margin, and all of a sudden we see ourselves in a granny again against Collingwood, who'd been a, one of the best sides all year. Um Righto, boys, we're here again. We might as well have a crack at it, yeah. clearly. Um, went in with, you know, with a few underdone, but 26 points down at half time. Michael Gardner had done his hamstring just before half time, so we're a man down um, on the canvas, on our knees at half time. And, and, you know, it was it was a mixture of Brew and, and Rossi and, and Lenny and the leaders and everybody saying, you know, we've come too far you know, to roll over and and lose by 40, mm. 60 points in a, in a second grand final. Let's just chip away an old cliche but moment mm. by moment, play by play. Um, and, and that last half of footy in the, the grand final was just as riveting and as brutal and as crazy as you'll ever see. You know, I count my lucky stars. The opportunity for Gardy to go down um, meant that I had to play on the ruck because we didn't. Benny McAvoy missed out. We only put one legitimate ruckman. I had to go and play on the ruck against um, against Darren Jolly. Sammy Gilbert went forward. I hired front row seats of watching Lenny Hayes jump on landmines and restart. <laughs> and BJ he taking awesome. hangers and you know Lenny Lenny won the brown uh, the, Norm the Norm Smith. Smith. It was just a brutal brutal war of attrition that we just clawed and clawed and clawed and hit the front with a couple of minutes to go. You know, Lenny hasn't kicked 30 metres in his life and, he, and he, <laughs> you know, he mustered every ounce of energy after throwing himself on landmines for the day. He he bangs one from 50. I'm not sure whether that drew it or put us up. BJ mm. takes, you know, one of the all-time greats, Marks in a grand final, 20 out. That definitely put us up. I remember t- spinning around with two minutes on the clock to Stevie Baker and there was just a look in the eye like, we're going to do this. We, yeah. We're actually going to win this. We're going to do it. You know, the ball goes down the other end, someone kicks a goal, the, tie, the, the, the scores are tied up. 100,000, 99,000 people on the, at the top of their lungs screaming, you know, and, and the siren goes and the realisation that's a draw and you'd hear a pin drop. Yeah, that eerie silence. In the stadium, you know, in the back of your mind you're thinking, what, what happens now? And you, you're that tired and, and out that- of breath and like, do we, do we actually have to go again or do we – flip the coin and go extra time. Like you, you knew in the back of your mind that it's a drawn grand final, we're going to come back Yeah. next week. But you just thought they might change the rules. Yeah, and we started we started going off towards the towards the change rooms and everyone's – some officials pulled us off. Actually, we've got to award the Norm Smith. There's a few formalities. So Lenny goes up, gets the Norm Smith. Lenny couldn't speak. Mm. If you go back That's and see right. the footage, He lost his voice, hadn't he'd, he? He'd, he'd been kicked in the voice box. So you can imagine how much that hurt and he played on with that and won the Norm Smith. Yeah, um, what a really deflating moment to win the Norm Smith too. Like just to yeah, get it and be like, oh. Yeah. And, and, you know, I'm sure he looks back on it now and has great pride in it. Uh, but at the time I don't think he could care less. All he could worry about was let's we need to get up and go again. And we, we went to walk to the Ponsford stand rooms and the official in front says we can't go down there. There's 
the, the pipes burst and the rooms were flooded. Oh, that's right. So we got ushered over or chauffeured over to the old southern stand rooms and our bags got there like an hour later on the back of a cart or something. But <laughs> being in those rooms, I clearly remember Michael Gardner sitting there with his hamstring rip going, well, I'm not going to be playing next week. There's my shot at grand final gone. Maybe his wife and his family consoling him. Mm. I'm a foot in a, in a bucket of ice. Did you train all that week? No. No. no so you're just train. really focusing on getting up yeah, for the following I Saturday. I remember on the, <laughs> getting home that night, having my foot in the ice, and I had a house full of family and a heap of pissed mates that had come down yeah. to celebrate and saying, look, you got to get out, leave me alone. I've got to play again and I've got to play another grand final in seven days. Um, you got to leave me alone, get out. Mm. That happened the Sunday. We, we had a meeting at Brighton Hotel with a sports psych. You know, what's the bit of a SWOT analysis? What, yeah. what's, how can we do this? What's going to happen? What's, you know, make sure everything was brought up and have you got any negative thoughts, positive thoughts, any anything indifferent? And we were pretty much in, we were in, a, in a pretty good frame of mind, you know, carrying a bit and knowing that we probably weren't the full book to train. But, you know, I think probably Collingwood wasn't either. Like they'd, you know, there was in the paper the other day that Alan Didak had a busted peck and, Everyone's carrying something yeah. at that time of year. Um, so we went through and off we went into the grand, into the into the replay and you know it was early stage. It was pretty evident that it was all over and had to uh, endure them getting up and and pretty much knowing not long after half time that the game was past us and loneliest place in the world standing in the in our goal square behind the Collingwood cheer squad, 60,000 Collingwood members, you know, chanting Collingwood mm. and um, one of the loneliest places I've ever been in. Knowing that and then there's back-to-back grand final losses and, you know, your mind all of a sudden, probably not in the game, but not long after the game goes, you know, what's the chances of everything falling right and getting us another go? You know, we've, yeah. we've just lost back-to-back. Um that's probably job done. And when you say the loneliest places, I agree with you, but then the, there's this pretty iconic photo of you and Nick, you know, like the two kids that started together and after the game you two consoling each other, hugging each other, just like, you know, you've gone in and, and tried to win it together and you just couldn't quite do it but you had each other's back and that's what that photo to me, I know probably doesn't mean the same thing to you but for me yeah. I'm like doesn't that just show how – it is a game, but your teammates are always going to be there for you no yeah. matter what's and going on. it was on. a really tight group and, you know, that, that whole group. We, we, we didn't win one. We, we've, we've not got the, the medal to prove it. The draw and that whole experience was our lifelong memories. They're strong memories. There's, there's, a, there's a general feel within that group that everybody gave everything, that effort – there's, there's, you know, the effort and the um, whatever. Nobody left anything out there in both years, both mm. games. So there's a there's a real strong um, respect, camaraderie within that group. You Does know, it get not, easier uh, as time goes on? Um, no, oh, no I know I've just so. made you relive it now. Yeah, but no, but does I, it get a bit easier? But, but there's not. No, there's not many days that you're not reminded of it or not yeah. it's not brought up and and sorry about that <laughs> no it doesn't really get easier because you know the, it's something you work so hard for and missed out on but still yeah. really grateful to go through the experience share the experience with some fantastic people and um, you said and to probably, me too i remember 
not long after the second game, it was the third grand final, that you could never go back to the MCG again, whether it was to watch cricket or anything. You just didn't yeah. want to go back in that place because it just had such bad memories. Yeah, and I, I, can you do you still go? Do you watch the cricket? Yeah, now? No, I've been there with the, been watched foot. Well, we had to play there the next year yeah. and whatever. But post retirement was really hard. Um, I can even driving down Punt Road now. I, I still have an empty feeling at looking at the ground, and I I hope that goes away sometime because. You grew up and it was the Coliseum of footy, the home of footy, and you dreamed of doing things on there. But there's nothing you can do about it. that. That ground and that space holds a, an empty mm. hole in your heart because of losing grand finals there and so narrowly. And, you know, you were there but you didn't get it. One thing that I think that we both connected on was around retiring and when it's your time and, and for you, you were a year or so before I decided to do it. But that's probably the time we spoke the most where we would support each other and, and we were kind of going through the same thing even though it was two very different sports. I was I was very quickly sliding off the mountain and you were really regaining yourself. I got dropped and got you myself got dropped. back in. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you got dropped and then became got back and played in the comm game, become vice captain of the country. <laughs> For the next couple of years, that's right. Exactly. And then, isn't and it? And I was falling off the cliff. So <laughs> we weren't really in the same position. Well, no, but I just feel like what I went through talking to you about your experiences helped me a couple of years later when it was my turn to go. And what I want people to realise is that how um, it's, it's about the people that you have around you too. And I'm not saying me, I'm saying in your experiences, what was it when you knew you were ready and was it someone tapping you on the shoulder? At this time, Scotty Waters was the coach. Ross Lyon had gone. Was it him tapping you on the shoulder? Was it you going, I'm done, my body's cooked? Um, yeah, no, I was uh, – so the lead-up to 2013, I actually had a fully a, – an uninterrupted pre-season. I felt really fit going into the pre-season games. Um, last year of contract felt really, really good. I remember being in the – nab cup whatever it was then and just blokes running past me and thinking don't you hate that it was just almost like just a slap in the face like yeah. i just can't like and i was never fast but blokes going past you and whatever you tried it wouldn't come off you couldn't do it just no tricks just had nothing up my sleeve so really poor pre-season games um block and then that culminated in not making the side for round one. I remember just being, wow, is this the start of the end? And not going the boys went to went to Gold Coast um, for round one and I was in the twos. Um, and then just all year just having a battle of it's not the end, I can dig in, I can train hard or do whatever. But as as the year went on, it was just I was mentally and physically just not up to it. Mentally I just wasn't there, didn't want to do the next the hard yards, um, everything just became tedious, like yoga classes and meetings of meetings <laughs> and all that. It was just like give us a spell. Yeah. Like, you know, it was just done. When your body wouldn't follow, you quickly just knew it was up. So, You sat on 199 games for a long time yeah. and Scotty Waters almost so I started didn't that, want to promise well, you, did he? I started that year on 195 and looked as soon as the draw came out, uh, I think, you know, family and friends or whatever, knowing that I had five to go to get the 200, thought, oh, we let's have a look at the draw. Round five was against the Swans in New Zealand. So we'd just done the New Zealand deal. Um, 
They didn't first, book flights, did they? <laughs> it was the first um, – it was going to be the first game off Australian shores for points, for AFL points. So yeah. it was pretty historical. Anzac Day, we got to get a bit of a part of that. I'm like, how good is this? This is just script written, 200th in New Zealand against the Swans. Um, so, yeah, family and friends started booking stuff, flights and making a bit of a few plans and then round one comes and I'm not the team. I'm like, you better hold fire on all that. <laughs> it's clearly not going to be that. I'll maybe get in next week and come around six. As the year went on, you know, it was just a little bit of good form in the twos, some injuries, some opportunity to get back in. I don't think I played more than two in a row. 199 with about eight weeks to go and I remember Scott pulling me aside and saying, uh, how do you think – how would you like the year to end? Like I think we'd – Clearly, the writing was on the wall. I yep. was done. Um, Had you admitted to anyone at the club that you were going to finish up? I, I think I can remember having the yeah the conversation with Scott. Yeah, I think that was was all over. You know, he supported that. No drama. I think he just reiterated what I was thinking that that they were going forward without me. Yeah, no, no big deal. Everyone's time comes. Um, and then he he. I remember the conversation. He asked me, "How does it?" How does the year look for you? And I said, well, there's eight weeks to go. Get me in there and I'll play the last eight with the boys. Good as gold. We weren't finals contention. And he goes, no, nah, it's not looking like that. No way. <laughs> um, you know, I really want you to play your 200th. You need to just keep chipping away and we'll see if we can slot you in. You're clearly not in our best team at the moment, which I still thought I was. Yeah. You know, you still back yourself. Um, then he comes to me. They played Frio, I think, over there, comes when we played Carlton we, next week, Carlton, Monday night, said, I'll play you, you're in 200th, then announce your retirement after it, leave your legacy, get a kid in there, off you go. I'm like, well, I don't want it to do that. Just get me in and I'll play the last eight. Yeah. You know, I want to. Why not? Yeah, let's play the last <laughs> eight. No worries. Yeah, but you'll be taking a spot of a kid who probably deserves it more, who's going to fast track their development by giving them a few games. I'm like, yeah, I know that. And it's really hard to like, yeah, yeah you know that. Yeah. But I want to just finish off playing with the boys and play with the jumper on and the whole lot. So, you know, the decision was taken out of my hands. It wasn't mm. my decision anyway. So I just had to go. And anyway. It got to a point though where you didn't think you were going to get your 200. Yeah, you? but I, I resigned to the fact. I went home and spoke to family and said, He's going to play me on Monday night as long as I pull up and end on 200 against Carlton. And I went to training on Mon- on the next, like the Monday leading up to that game mm. and tore my calf. No. So I walked into his office and he's, what's up? And I said, well, I've just done my calf. And he's like, oh. I said, well, yeah, I was going to play, yep, I'll take your offer, offer up to play this week, play 200, see you later, walk off into the sunset, help out around the club, sit in the coach's box, yeah. do whatever for the last couple of months. But I've done my calf. Is there any point in me rehabbing it and working on it to get it? I mean, he goes, yes. Go do your rehab, get it right, get fit again, you know, and whatever, and we'll see what happens. And then it was just a long, drawn-out saga. So it came to the last round against Frio and um, lucky enough to sneak in and start on the bench. I wasn't that wrapped to be the Kermit the Frog with the vest. <laughs> But I need a bit of a shout-out to my little good mate Joey Montagna at this stage because I was a bit cooked with a calf injury leading up to the last game. Walked out on the Wednesday, the main session, and I've got my socks up to my knees because the physio had strapped my calf up pretty tight and I didn't want the coaches so and the guys it. to see that. So <laughs> socks up, 
walk out, there's six GPS units for 40 blokes training and I've like walked up and the little um, data collecting science, sports science nerd comes up to me and goes, here, <laughs> you're wearing this. I'm like, oh, good one, mate. Yeah, awesome. And he goes, no, you're really wearing it. I couldn't believe it but that was right. So they wanted to track me, my uh, HIR, high-intensity running, um, ground covered, the whole lot to just see how fit I was and if I was going to be capable of playing senior footy. So I thought if I have a real crack here, if I have a real go at training, I'm going to snap my calf, job over. There's no coming back from you because this is last week. 199 all over. Brian Royal, eat your heart out. You finish on 199. Okay, I got that. I was going to be a, uh, in that in that um, category. So halfway through the first lap, I'd called Joey over and we stopped to do a bit of a stretch on the fence. And I said, how are you feeling, little mate? And he goes, all right. And I said, good, because you're wearing this for me. <laughs> I pulled out the GPS pack, stuck it in his jumper. I said, don't go too hard, but because they're clearly going to know it's you <laughs> and not me. Just sort of lope around, do what you need to do. Don't go too fast. Um. So, yeah, I just spent the back – I spent training just at the back of the lines and doing a bit of a stretch and this and that and jogged through and made sure I touched the footy a couple of times and clearly they didn't watch training. Uh, Joey did his thing. Got to the last drill and I went and got it back off him, put it back in my jumper, walked up, take my jumper off, here's my thing. They went and downloaded it, rang me up that night and said, you're actually pretty good, Nick, because hey, try ours up. You've covered five or six Ks for the training run. I think you're good to go. And I thought they were taking the piss. <laughs> and he kept going. I said, yeah, oh, look, I've worked hard. Training's been good. Done the rehab. Good as gold. So next thing, come to selection, read the same teams out on the Friday. I'm in the team on the bench with a cooked calf. Um, <laughs> Thanks, Joey. And the rest is history. <laughs> what a mate. What a good fella. And did they ever find out? Did you ever tell them? Well, they do, yeah. they. I think they know. Uh Simon actually, we're at a function, the guy that collects all the data, he was at a function and he made a bit of light heart about it up on stage a couple of weeks ago at a coterie function. He said, I haven't seen Cozzy since uh, he gave Joey his GPS with a bit of his tongue in his cheek, so <laughs> good as gold. You then walk away from footy. Did you know what you wanted to do? No, no, I had no idea. Um, midway through the year when I'd started to get some enjoyment out of – sort of got my head out out of the sand and, and got some enjoyment in playing in the VFL and helping the kids and realising that I'm an old hack and I'm never going to make it back and whatever. I, you know, I've got that a bit of a gut feel about being a coach, you know, and thinking, well, I don't know anything else. Footy's been my life for 13 years. I've got a little bit to give back here and this is going to be my new career. Um, bloody hell, I haven't got my certificates. I better go do some coaches' courses at the whole show. <laughs> And I remember having a conversation with Rossi Lyon about it. Um, so this was even though he was Freo coach, he was still he was Freo a coach. close friend of yours. Yeah. And uh, he said, and, and I respected his opinion 100% and he said, you know what, given, and, uh, given what footy has done to you mentally and physically, get off the treadmill, get off the footy treadmill and, and go and, you know, use your people skills and your personality and go and try something different. You know, yeah. Um, and that was the advice I took. That was I, I didn't look at coaching for a minute after that advice um, and started looking around and Letterfied Lighting was the major sponsor of the Saints at the time. Made some, had some contacts there and a bit of a uh, 
a business development sales role and, and got into that and it's, I think it's the best decision I've ever made. I do don't. You, do you still watch footy? Like do you enjoy, like if the Saints are playing, do you have to watch it or it's just um, you do a few times? Yeah, not, not really. Um, I called a few games my first year out yeah. with, um, with AFL Live, with Croc Media. I really enjoyed that. I found it um, it's so hard to be critical and be very pointy and I didn't want to get your opinion out there because you'd only just finished and you didn't, I didn't want to forget how hard it was um, yeah. out there. So I really I did enjoy that but business and, and family and playing a little bit at home and everything just got in the way of, of, that, of the media stuff. Um, but no, I don't. I don't watch a lot of footy. I, I hate how scrutinised and overcovered it is. Yeah. Um, and because you're not one to have used social media a lot, have no, you? Everybody's like? got an opinion on it. Yeah. You know, I'll tune in to see how the Saints are going, whether it's Rue or Joey or the yeah. boys over the years, the guys that I've played with, they're having a milestone or something. I've probably only seen the Saints play a handful of times in the last live, um, in the last three and a bit years. But there's there's a bit more to it. It doesn't really give me the buzz that it used to. And this new business venture, tell us about it. Um, yeah, so I've been in, involved with Letterfied Lighting for three and a half years, which has been great. Um, we've just launched um, a, a men's multivitamin supplement called Xdrive. So Xdrive. That's pretty exciting um, to be heavily involved in that. I just thought it was a bit of a flash in the pan, but it looks like it's been launched on TV, we've got a really heavy marketing campaign to get it out there. Channel 7, Triple M, ESPN are running it. Um, really exciting team behind it, some great ambassadors and it's it's a bit sexy. It's a bit really? up and about. It's, it's, not, um, it's not your run-of-the-mill multivitamin. It's, it's got a bit of an edge to it. It's, it's uh, targeted to... The wannabe athlete, the athlete, the everyday run-of-the-mill tradie. It's the a, businessman. The businessman that wants to get up and about and feel a bit sharper. It's And there's it's, a female version. There's coming out. There's an there's an extra female supplement coming out. Um, that and so we'll, people that can we'll get launch. it. Uh, it is it's on shelves in all your good pharmacies. Okay. Um, and wherever. You can get it online as well um, at Xdrive. We've got a really good website, some great marketing around it. So what is the website? Well, Xdrive, just Google Xdrive. <laughs> www.xdrive.com, <laughs> whatever that is. Um, Let's just hope that's into the it. One. And you can probably see my mug on there and part of the ad. And if you see yeah. me on telly. Oh, give you a shout out, hey. Don't laugh. All right, I've got quick questions just to end it. We give these questions to everybody who comes on the Talking Footy podcast. Who was your favourite footy player growing up? Uh, Dunstall and Carey. I loved watching them. Who's the best player at St Kilda that you've played with? Rewalt, followed by Hayes Just. Who's the best player you played against? Matty Scarlett. Had some really good battles. Did he well, just probably, annoy you? Well, they're probably not battles. He pants me. But it was <laughs> in the last few years and when we were really – when they were at their peak and we were at a peak, he was just a, a super player for his size and strong and quick and – they, they gave us a lot of trouble. Biggest lie the media has ever told about you? That I'm a bad bloke. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with that. Calm down, um, everyone. Yeah, the me- it's a funny one, the media. 
you know. You love it now though. Like not as in yeah. you seek it out, but you enjoy going I, on radio. And I always I, and I always did and and it was probably and it was probably me. I'd oh, after 06 and the whole injury stuff and the the whole whatever that created and I just was like this is just getting overplayed and I felt like I really enjoyed the media before that and I just felt like it was getting overplayed and I didn't feel like I had the runs on the board to get in there and have an opinion and be mm. seen out and about. And I really wanted to go back and concentrate on it. So I think I got a bad taste in it for how I felt about myself and how I was performing in that rather than media personalities and the actual media. So that's yeah. probably how it came across. This is how you coped. Yeah. I was shut away from it, which, you know, is really disappointing and I'm not that wrapped about that. Best advice you've ever been given? Uh, be in the moment. Be in the moment. Don't look forward. Don't look back. If you've got one foot in tomorrow and one foot in, in uh, yesterday, yesterday, you're pissing on today. <laughs> Last time you cried. Last time I cried. Uh, I can't remember. Come on, you're a bit yeah, softy. No, I am a crier. No dramas about that. It would have been to do with something to do with the kids. And where do you see yourself in 20 years' time? Uh... I hopefully have got back to the agricultural side. I hopefully I've back done to the farm. Not not back to the farm in a full. That's my whole life, and I'm um, relying on the income and the weather and whatever. Um, my family will be strongly and heavily involved in the farm. I'd love a little. I see myself in Melbourne. Yeah, I do. I really love Melbourne. Been here for you know half of my life now. Kids at school, great networks here, the whole lot. But I'd love a little. Bit of dirt for a bit of fun on. I've got that at the farm. It's four hours away, but I'd love to, to have a little bit of a holiday block somewhere. And the final word, if you could change one thing about footy, what would it be? I would get rid of defensive zones <laughs> and just go back and have a full forward and full back. Back just, to the how it was when the you 90s. started. I always said I would love to play in the 80s and 90s, kick behind the play as a ruckman and take pack marks or as a full forward that doesn't leave the 50. I just love that that style. But you know what? You can't change your birth certificate. And Steve Silvani, I can remember him saying that as like it was yesterday. <laughs> you can't change your birth date, so adapt to it and just play with what's in front of you. So Some more great advice. Mm. Thanks, Cozzy. It's been Mate, great. You're a champion. Thanks for sitting still for so long. No worries. <laughs> Let's go mad now. <laughs> Thanks again for listening. If you enjoyed the episode of Talking Footy Podcast, please make sure you leave us a review. It's pretty simple. Jump on iTunes, search Talking Footy Podcast and give us a rating. Even leave us a review and tell us who you want to hear from next. And don't forget to check out our other episodes, including my personal faves, Bob Murphy, Jimmy Bartell, Wayne Carey and Matthew Richardson. Keep checking in for the new episode every week. We're talking footy.